On the show today, we talk about the joys of home cooking and how it can support community health centers. I'm Amarika Raffanelli, and this is Direct Relief Connect. Today on the show, we have Graham, also known as Tabitai. Am I saying that right? Tabitai yes. Cooking. Um, so Graham is a food and drink streamer. Um, he broadcasts cooking content and co-hosts a podcast called The Live Feed. Uh, and that's kind of a podcast where they talk about food and drink content creation um, as a hobby. Um, and he's personally raised over $40,000 um, for charity through fundraising live streams um, and supported directly from the past, um, streaming and Zeldathon side quest events. And we also have Rose Levy. So Rose is the a program manager for global programs at Direct Relief. She's worked at the organization for two and a half years now. Um, and she's been involved in tons of projects. So the Vaseline Healing Project, um, addressing infectious disease and underserved communities. She's also an avid cook, um, gardener, and candle maker. Um, yeah, so so welcome, Graham and Rose. Very nice to meet you both. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Amrika. Okay, Rose, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um, as you said, my name is Rose Levy, and I work here at Direct Relief, and um, I live in Santa Barbara, California, which is also where I was born and raised. So I moved back about eight years ago after leaving for quite some time to um, go to college, and um, I had some jobs, including um, was a member of the U.S. Peace Corps, so moved around quite a bit, and then had the lucky opportunity to move back here about eight years ago and um, about two and a half years ago, I started working at Direct Relief. Nice. Graham, what about you? Oh, uh, well, I, uh, I started streaming about three years ago, uh, sort of based on an experiment. I really thought I was going to be a food YouTuber and uh, that I wound up being talked into streaming on Twitch instead because uh, I'd heard the community was really nice and uh, I just sort of fell in love. I've been doing that ever since and uh, I've been raising money for various charities since 2018 and uh, Direct Relief since 2020. Graham, how did you find out about Direct Relief? Well, the first time I got involved with Direct Relief was because of Zeldathon side quests. And I think it was August of 2020, uh, where I did a cooking segment with another streamer, Clinkit. And we had a pancake, a, sort of a mini pancake speed run. It was like a really clickbaity food challenge on TikTok at the time. And we wound up making just these enormous bowls of tiny pancakes for charity donations. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, so I've been aware of Direct Relief since then. And uh, yeah, I got involved with the most recent Zeldathon side quest as well, where, uh, where they were partnered with them again. Rose, what about you? I, you know, I can't exactly remember when I like found out about Direct Relief because I grew up in Santa Barbara where Direct Relief is headquartered. Um, the community is very well aware of the organization. And um, I was probably in elementary school or junior high when I first kind of knew of Direct Relief. I think it might have been my mom who first told me about the organization. So I feel like I've always just kind of known, uh, you know, that they were in my community um, and known about their work. Mm. Okay, Rose. So 
at Direct Relief. Um, you're a program manager, but you give out awards to these safety net health centers and clinics. So tell us what an award is. Yeah, so uh, we have um, a lot of uh, companies, sometimes pharmaceutical companies that have um funds that they give to us that they want basically redistributed out to um, community health centers and free clinics. So we structure um, competitive um, RFP processes or other ways of kind of um, selecting criteria for award or grant funds. Okay, and wait, then, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you. What is an RFP? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We structure kind of competitive proposal processes um, where we might have um, different segments of health centers based on um, geography or other um, kind of considerations. And we, we ask for proposals for specific projects. So based on those proposals, we're able to kind of read through and pick um, kind of winners for awards. Um, so that might be around... Um, infectious disease or diabetes and nutrition management. It could be for multiple chronic condition care. There's kind of a variety of different um, areas of interest that companies might have that Direct Relief is kind of the implementing partner for grant or award funding. Okay, so the awards are money, they're grants. Can you give us an example um, of, a, of a project that Direct Relief has funded yeah. Um, last uh, December, in uh, December 2020, we um, launched the uh, Community Awards um, for Infectious Disease. So it was in partnership with uh, the Pfizer Foundation. So um, we went through the competitive process and selected um, 11 different health centers and clinics from across the country to receive award funding to um go towards programming of clinical and non-clinical approaches to um, infectious disease prevention, um, care, and education and outreach. Okay, give us like a, a real life example of, you know, one clinic that took this money and put it towards, you know, a project. What What is that project? Sure. So one of the winners from that award is Chiricahua Health Centers in Douglas, Arizona, and they um, use their award money to create a binational infectious disease committee. So their community is on the U.S.-Mexico border, and um, they had uh, observed over the years that although there's a international border between themselves and Sonora, Mexico, that infectious disease doesn't care there's a border. It spreads regardless whether that's um, something as common as the flu or like we've seen more recently with COVID. So in order to have communication and cooperation between the health officials on the U.S. side of the border and the Mexico side of the border, they've created a task force essentially to be in communication about um, outbreaks that might be happening so that the, their counterparts on the other side of the border can be aware and ready and put into place the measures they might need to help um, you know, stop the spread of the disease, get the public ready, make sure that they aren't caught off guard because they were unaware of something that might have only been happening 10 miles away. And I know at Direct Relief, we, we kind of throw this term around a lot, um, safety net health facility. 
Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's the healthcare safety net in the U.S. is, yeah, a lot of federally qualified health centers, um, free and charitable clinics, and they are there um, to make sure that everybody has access to healthcare. And they're often in medically underserved communities because um, the option is needed and because many people in those communities might be lacking health insurance or lacking adequate health insurance for what they need. So, yes, these facilities are um, the safety net to make sure that, you know, everybody has an option of where to receive quality health care. Okay, Graham, so I just want to turn to you. Mm-hmm. I I was stalking your Instagram, as one okay. does, <laughs> right, and I am just so impressed. You are, you're a true chef. I can't even pronounce, oh, you know, like half the dishes um, that you make. Okay. So you say that you like to make simple food the hard way. Yes. Um, why? Oh, uh, the short answer is because it's more fun. Uh, I, I think it's like. debatable. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think the idea that, uh, you know, somebody who spends their entire weekend maybe working on their own homemade broth, for example. Uh, I don't know. That seems really exciting to me. That seems really, really cool. And I like, I guess I've always had sort of like a lot of respect for people that sort of dive into their interests and spend a lot of time getting something just so. And uh, that my my way of doing that is through cooking. And so there's been all kinds of examples of this throughout the stream, but like uh, putting together like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich where every part of the sandwich is homemade, for example, homemade bread, homemade peanut butter, homemade jelly, all that. And it's just, uh, I don't know, I, I feel like it teaches people something valuable about where their food comes from and what's in it. Uh, and so that's why I'm happy to do that. Yeah, these are like four hour long streams. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think the longest I've done has been somewhere around 12 or 13 hours oh of God. just cooking. Yeah. What were you making on that stream? Well, there, I've done a couple that are like 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there. Uh, most of the time, they're charity streams for my birthday, and I'll do breakfast, lunch, dinner throughout the day. Or uh, anytime I'm prepping for Thanksgiving, you know, I don't know if either of you two cook for Thanksgiving, but I, I definitely do. It's my favorite holiday. So uh, we always spend the entire day before doing all the prep and then the day of doing the roast and all the plating and everything, getting everything arranged. It's a lot of fun. Um, but I, I definitely had to invest in some anti-fatigue mats for my kitchen because <laughs> it, it'll it'll wear you out. That's for sure. Um, Rose, you're also a chef, right? I home cook, <laughs> I would say. But yeah, I I really enjoy. I I think, like Graham said, like taking the time and making things right. I always have homemade broth in my freezer. It's one of mm-hmm. my specialties. Like it's in my book, it's a crime to make soup if you haven't made you know, your broth from scratch. Yes. Yes. I think there's something really horrible about buying. I I don't know where, where, what it's like where you guys live, but here at the grocery store, a box of broth costs about $4 and it's thin and watery and it doesn't taste that good. And, you know, just being able to make your own and have that as a base for sauces and a variety of things, whatever you need it for. It's just, it's fantastic. Yep. I was also just so impressed with how interactive your streams are. It's it's so much better than <laughs> watching the Food Network. You know, I don't get to talk with Giada about her Panamigiano Reggiano risotto, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think there's something appealing about that for a lot of my viewers, because uh, if you look back to the early days of food television, uh, all the way back to like Julia Child on The French Chef, uh, their, their, uh, their production team couldn't afford an editor. 
So everything that she does is always ad lib and you can see her messing up like an omelet flip or uh, breaking a sauce and then having to fix it. And I think there's something really endearing and relatable about that to people who maybe not necessarily cooking along at home, but maybe trying to get inspiration for things they can do in their own kitchen. And, and also, you know, some of the conversation kind of veers away. It's not just about cooking. You know, I think on one, you guys were talking about like vaccinations or something. (laughs) Yeah. I think, uh, I think any streamer will handily admit that things can get off the rails pretty quickly. Um, (laughs) I, I, I would like to say that uh, I grew up in a household where at the dinner table, everything was fair game. You could bring up whatever you wanted without fear of repercussion or uh, being judged. And so I, that's sort of like a little bit of like my home's culture that I sort of try and bring to stream. You can tell me how your day was or uh, whether it's good or bad, and I'm happy to hear it. What's your favorite thing to cook? Right now, I'm obsessed with making ramen. So I've been making ramen now for about six years. I'm trying to get a local business off the ground where I deliver ramen kits to people and then they can prepare them at home just using a couple of pots on the stove and take all the work out of the process. I'll make the noodles, I'll make the broth, I'll do everything ahead of time and then just people can come pick it up from me or I deliver it to them. And that's that's something I'm working on right now. Um, so that's that's my current obsession, I would say. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot of your cooking is, it's Asian, right? Mm-hmm. Asian inspired, right? A, a lot of it's Japanese. The word tabetai is actually a Japanese word. And this whole thing started as an excuse for me to try to learn food culture that is that I have nothing to do with. Uh, and so I thought it would be kind of cool. Like maybe that could be the, not necessarily the the gimmick, but the impetus behind the stream is that we've got this guy that grew up in Florida trying to make Japanese food at home. And maybe people can watch that journey happen. And so now, three years in, I've gotten kind of decent at it. And uh, yeah, so that, 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 that foundation is, is definitely there. So you're not a professional chef. Like you didn't go to no. culinary school. No way. No. I, uh, <laughs> I, worked for, I, I worked for an Italian restaurant as a dishwasher for about three weeks. And I once worked room service at a hotel. And that was about it. Wow. That's amazing. Um, Rose, what, what, kind, what's your, you know, favorite style of, of cooking? That's a hard question to answer. Um, you know, I like to try different things really. I think that's what I find really exciting about cooking is that, you know, if you, you know, pick up a cookbook or go on the internet, you can pretty much find a recipe for anything. And if you can source Mm -hmm. the right ingredients and take the time, you can make it. And I find that really exciting. I think when the pandemic started, I started cooking some Indian food, which was new for me. I hadn't really dove into Indian food. So I got, um, it's a cookbook um, by uh, Priya Krishna called Indianish that I started cooking from. That was really fun. Um, and I've recently started cooking a lot of Indonesian food. So that's, that's been fun, except I can't get anywhere uh, in town locally kefir lime leaves, which most in, uh, Indonesian recipes call for. And if you don't have them, they say it's optional. I don't really think it is. So yeah, still trying to figure that out. <laughs> that's really cool. I actually, a few years ago, I, I worked and lived in Indonesia and uh, learned a lot about the local. You are absolutely right. Like there isn't really a great substitute for lime leaves, unfortunately. 
No. And I've tried like one of the recipes I was following said optional. So, and I didn't have it, I didn't use it and it was fine. And then I made it a few weeks later with the the lime leaves and it was just Mm -hmm. completely different. I was like, Oh no, this, this is not optional. Yeah. It can be really tough, especially with stuff like, uh, stuff like Galangal and lemongrass can be hard to find sometimes. It's, it's, it requires some hunting. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Graham, where do you live? I live in, I live just outside of Seattle. So I I, I live pretty close to a big city. Okay. So yeah, the, the, there's like, you know, a pretty good uh, selection of ingredients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can, I can drive about an hour away and get more or less anything I need. Uh, Sometimes it's a little bit more of a drive than I want to make, but uh, it's, it's there if I need it. Yeah. And I, you know, and Los Angeles is about an hour away. So same, but I'm not driving into Los Angeles every week to buy, you know, specific <laughs> ingredients. So, cause sometimes you'll just like, it'll be a Wednesday and you're like, Oh, I want to make this thing. And mm-hmm. you just got to make it work with what you have on hand, but you can, I mean, it might not be the exact um, replication of what you are trying to do, but it's still going to be delicious and fun to make. So, you know, you can go for it. Yeah. You know, some people say like cooking is meditative for me when I cook, I'm just hungry. So you know, usually it's just me being hangry and trying to cook as fast as possible. So I'm kind of curious, what do you, you know, for you, is this like a kind of like a spiritual endeavor? Is there, is it more than just, you know, creating, you know, survival? I know for me, I I love eating good food. Um, So one of the easiest ways to do that, you know, is to cook good food, is to make it yourself. So um, I think for me, you know, I get called a foodie all the time. I don't know if that's true. I just enjoy, like, if you have to do something multiple times a day, you might as well make it, you know, great. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, you know, I want to eat good food. I think what makes the process easier on, on our side is, like, I get to cook for my wife. And maybe the best thing about cooking is getting to, like, give your food to somebody else and have a good reaction. And so the fact that I get to do that as part of like my day job is really, really cool. That's like my favorite thing about it. So yeah, regardless of how I feel during the process, it's, it's worth it. I think someone's once said like life is just a series of chores, you know, and, and, you know, you have to feed yourself like Rose was saying. Mm -hmm. So it's like, why not, why not enjoy it? Yeah. And I, I'm now trying more and more. I have a little bit of a garden going in my yard. So trying to grow some of the things I cook with, I don't have tons of space and, you know, um, still, still learning how to garden, but that's been really fun. You know, I have tomatoes and beans and, um, some peppers and other things growing right now. I have herbs like basil and rosemary and that's really fun. Where do you guys get your, your recipe inspiration? Rose mentioned, Rose mentioned Priya Krishna a few minutes ago. She has a really lovely selection of recipes on, for Indian food. Uh, so I, I get, I do get some from, from that book that, that Rose mentioned. Lately, I've been enjoying a few food blogs out there. I just sort of, you just sort of develop like a catalog of things online you can always pull from. And food definitely also follows trends a lot too. So if something is like really, really hot at the moment, I'll try and maybe borrow something from there or try and try and represent that in some way. So uh, a few months ago, uh, there was this really big thing about uh, like Korean barbecue. And so I was like, oh, well, I should definitely do a Korean barbecue thing at home as best I can and uh, see how that goes. So it's, it's just, it just depends on what's going on online is where I get most of my inspiration. 
Yeah, I've I've resorted back to cookbooks, which is fun. Um, you know, the internet's always there. You can find any recipe you want, but um, I'm currently doing my best to cook all the way through Molly Boz's Cook This Book, which came out recently. And so I'm probably about a quarter of the way through cooking every recipe in the book. So that's kind oh, of wow. fun doing like one or two a week. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of times for me, it's just, I might be craving something like Brussels sprouts or pork belly or something. And then you just kind of look online or look in cookbooks till you find a recipe that includes that, that you want to make. Mm-hmm. Are, are you guys the type of people that go to restaurants and are just always disappointed? <laughs> Uh, I, I think if I'm any way at a restaurant, it's probably like feeling kind of bad because I could be at home cooking in front of a camera. Uh, <laughs> apart from, apart from that, we don't actually go out that even before COVID, we didn't go out that often though, because uh, as it is two, three, four days a week, I'm, you know, making enough food for leftovers. And so, you know, we just always have stuff in the house, you know, we just never need to go out. Uh, but I really do need to get better about that. You know, Seattle's a fantastic restaurant city and I need to, I, I feel more disappointed that I'm not, you know, living it up and enjoying it sometimes. I guess I, I don't go out to restaurants that often, but when I do, I definitely try to order things that I don't know how to make and whether that's just, you know, eating something I wouldn't be able to make myself or getting inspiration to like Mm. try something new. But yeah, I definitely, when I'm looking at menus, like I'm looking at it like, oh, I can make that, I can make that. And then I'll order something that I've not made before. Yeah. Um, Okay, Graham. So last year, I think you mentioned this, that you raised money for direct relief during the the Zeldathon side quest event. Mm -hmm. And most people are raising funds gaming, but you cooked, I assume. Yes. Okay. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. So, uh, I cooked with another food streamer, uh, named Clinkett and she is like, she's been, she's been at it as long as I have. She's somebody I, I look up to tremendously. And so we thought it would be kind of fun if we did sort of a competitive cook-off sort of thing, just something very simple, something we could really put out in numbers and we settled on little miniature pancakes because there was this viral craze at the time about pancake cereal, uh, where people make tiny pancakes, put them in a bowl and, uh, eat them with a spoon because that's the internet. And, uh, we, we decided we would have a race to see who could make the most in two hours, but people could donate and sabotage one team or both as the contest was going on. So we had a timer going. We were cranking these things out as, as quickly as we could. And we each had like an enormous bowl of miniature pancakes. But people could donate to make a stop and spin around a broomstick, make ourselves dizzy, put on a blindfold, uh, force us to you know not use any kitchen utensils for a minute, stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, wound, up, wound up being really successful, actually. Like we had a really good time with that. I'm, I think I'm convinced now that that people that live stream for charity, it's just, they're just masochists. They just do things <laughs> that are just horrible. There All is some charity. element of some element of truth to that. That is correct. <laughs> Although I think, I think we're going to flip the script next time. I think next time I do any charity event, it's just going to be like for this milestone, Graham gets a day off or <laughs> for this milestone, Graham drinks an extra glass of water or something <laughs> like that. Like just a little more self care maybe would, uh, would go yeah. a long way. Yeah. 
I'm behind it. Okay, I'm also curious when you mentioned the, the like the cook-offs, you know, and you're like doing these streaming things where you're talking into cameras, like you are Food Network material. Like, would you ever go on <laughs> one of those those like competition shows? No. Oh, okay. No. Why? Uh, Tell us. Well, yeah. I mean, I. You're not a reality I, star. I well, I think I think I, I I think anybody could be. I think with the right level of uh, histrionics and drama. But I think the, the competitive cooking shows sort of miss something important when it comes to sort of the food culture I like to espouse, which is like, it should be fun to cook. I'm much more into watching people excel than watching people try to win. And so if somebody can be really good at something outside of the confines of a competition where they're trying to beat the person next to them, that, that, that just excites me way more. I find that way more fun. And so uh, thank you for the compliment. I, I, I really do appreciate that. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't think I could ever do like a real competitive uh, uh, cooking show. I, I, I think I just, it would sort of ruin the magic. It would ruin the fun for me, if that makes sense. I've never been, I've never understood those cooking shows because they're always like timed. And I'm like, there are just some things that you can't make that fast. You're just excluding like an entire like world of food that like can't be made in 20 minutes. One of the, one of the most common things I say to my wife when I'm cooking something is she'll come in and she'll ask, when's dinner going to be ready? And, or when, how long do I cook this for? And I, I'm giving her instruction and I say, until it's done. Right. <laughs> And it's just, you, you never really know like what, how it's going to go, like uh, trying to carefully schedule and, and, and meter uh, these events. I don't know. It, it adds something to it that I think takes away from the whole thing. You so. let your wife cook in the kitchen. That's better than me. I would not let my husband <laughs> cook in the kitchen with me. Yeah. I mean, my wife's capable. Uh, she, she would, she would not be shy to say that compliment. I, <laughs> she, well, she, I, I, I try to compliment her cooking all the time and she's just like, Oh, come on, Graham. Seriously, seriously. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm trying to say this in a way that I know when she hears this later, she'll understand what I mean is that she has her specialty. She makes a killer chicken piccata. She does. But, you know, like we I, I'm always saying like, oh, it's Amanda's specialty when she's just like handing me a toasted bagel with cream cheese on it. And, you know, <laughs> she's she thinks that's funny. So, but yeah, she's welcome to the kitchen anytime she she wants to. Do you guys cook to any like specific diets ever like plant-based or keto um you know vegan whatever yeah I, I i really like to uh i really like to try out different diets we used to do meatless mondays on stream back when i was streaming on mondays uh just because i sort of feel like uh, advocating for people to sort of try different methods of cooking you know even if nobody in your family is a vegetarian there's still the chance that you're going to be hosting a vegan someday and you need to know how to be ready for that, you know? Uh, Cause there's nothing really more embarrassing, embarrassing than like going down the row of foods you've prepared and saying like, well, okay, that has meat in it. Sorry. That has mayonnaise in it. That is butter. That is milk, whatever it is. And just not having anything to offer somebody like that, that feels bad. So uh, I sort of like uh, espousing a little bit of like preparedness when it comes to alternate diets. Like what is a gluten-free substitute for, this type of flour or thickener uh, and, and just making sure that those tools are in the toolbox, so to speak. Yeah. What about you, Rose? 
So yeah, at my house, we don't have any specific diets. We, um, I'll cook for people what they require if they come, you know, to my house, I'm hosting them. Um, I grew up in a Jewish family, so I cook a lot of kosher food when needed for friends and family and, um, really comfortable with that. And, um, we eat at home, um, pretty light on animal proteins for sustainability reasons, but we don't have any kind of hard and fast diet rules. Yeah. You guys sound really, really accommodating. Um, so I'm like pretty plant-based. Um, and whenever I come home, my mom, you know, I just get an earful about it. My mom is just not happy about it. So you guys, I'm going to come to your guys' house. (laughs) Welcome anytime. Anytime. Yeah. I've got a question for Graham. Yeah. Um, back to some of the direct relief staff, I guess you're somewhat of a new supporter of direct relief. What are some of the things that you've kind of learned that, um, about the organization that you've enjoyed? Well, it's been great actually, because I sort of had this idea that organizations like direct relief existed. I grew up not in Seattle. I grew up in Florida in the middle of hurricane alley. And so the idea of disaster relief was not unknown to us growing up. You know, uh, people would come in with all sorts of emergency supplies and equipment after the fact. And uh, so I had a very clear image of the sort of work that direct relief does, not just from that, but also from my professional life where I traveled a lot to uh, the developing world and things like that. And got to see all kinds of uh, really, really nice people doing wonderful things for, for in the wake of these natural disasters. And, and so that's, that sort of is like the image that I had going in. And uh, hearing about uh, hearing about direct relief's efforts, especially like in the in the age of COVID, has been really really rewarding to sort of know that you know we've been helping in any capacity with that. Um, it's 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 really helped me a lot to be able to say that. So, thank you so much, <laughs> Rose. I have a question for you. What's your favorite thing about direct relief? I think just how versatile the organization is, and how kind of. Um, the expanse of what we do and where we're, where and how we're able to help. I think that it's always sometimes surprising to me, even though I know what we do and I know what we're kind of capable of. And every time I read um, kind of reports on um, emergency response efforts we've done, or I read some of the um, news articles that our communications teams puts out, I still kind of get like surprised and I get like shocked a little bit. I'm like, wow, we, we could do that. We're like, really, we're, we're working in that country. We're working in that organization. And it's just kind of, um, seems to go on forever. <laughs> yeah. I, I also always am so impressed. So I get to interview a lot of these people, um, these like, you know, providers from health centers and clinics, and we just work with some pretty amazing humans, you know? I'm always so amazed by um, the health centers and clinics that uh, partner with Direct Relief. They are um, so in touch with their communities. They do so much to serve their patients and really meet patients where they're at to provide kind of culturally competent services to make sure that they're, um, you know, sensitive of everybody's lived experiences. They really are... um, well suited um, to be dealing with a wide variety of populations. And um, it's just really an honor to be able to work with them and to be able to support them in serving patients in their health needs. And um, it's also really remarkable the kind of 
different types of services are, are provided at these um, community-based health, you know, centers and clinics. Um, you know, everything from, you know, full dental care um, to behavioral and mental wellness, um, you know, primary care, um, prenatal and postnatal care. There's just a ton, you know, pediatrics. There's just a ton of different specialties and, you know, areas of medicine that are involved. So there's really um, a huge asset to communities and a huge asset to um, people that might be um, uninsured or underinsured, low income, and not able to kind of, um, you know, participate in other areas of healthcare. And it's just such a valuable resource. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, so, on that note, what what are you working on right now, and and what do you have coming up? Yeah, working on a lot of things right now. Um, always working on the Vaseline Healing Project, which is a really great partnership that we have with the Vaseline brand um, and all of their products. Uh, working not only on the distribution of those prof- products to um, health centers and clinics um, and hospitals globally, um, but also working on um, treatment missions, healthcare education, patient education through the Vaseline Healing Project to make sure that um, there's good access globally to um, skin healthcare and, and um, quality um, dermatolog- dermatological care. Um, also working on um, the program with Pfizer with the Infectious Disease Awards and um we just um, hit the six-month mark from that program, so that's been incredible to see the progress that these health centers and clinics have made. Um, even with COVID going on, they've still been able to kind of, um, you know, see progress and start meeting their goals for those programs and, um, you know, help patients, whether that's with COVID as an infectious disease or with other um, infectious diseases as well. Yeah. Yeah, that, that just sounds so cool. And I'm excited to talk more with you about it and, and do some stories about about the work. Um, yeah. Graham, what about you? What do you have coming up? Oh, boy. Uh, we are working on a cookbook at the moment, actually. Uh, we're going to be putting together a collaborative cookbook with myself, my podcast co-host, uh, Minnesota underscore Taz, and maybe maybe like uh, 15 or so other food and drink streamers. So we're going to collaborate and put together, everybody's going to submit like one or two recipes and we're going to have this sort of text available uh, to use as charity incentives or, uh, you know, community goals and things like that. So that's, that's the current project right now. Sweet. Mm -hmm. Sweet. All right. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Rose. It was great chatting with you guys. Likewise, likewise. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thanks. Graham, I did. Can you just give our listeners, you know, your, what's your, I guess what you call it, like your Twitch name or your sure. Instagram? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think if you Google Tabatai Cooking, T-A-B-E-T-A-I, Tabatai Cooking, uh, yeah, I mean, you'll find me in some way, shape, or form on the internet, but uh, my Twitch channel is twitch.tv slash Tabatai Cooking, normally live two, three days a week, making all kinds of food, uh, chatting with my wife, we have a cute dog, come check it out, and uh, I guess I guess that's the plug. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Direct Relief Connect is bringing you new amazing guests like Rose and Graham every two weeks. Direct Relief Sessions is going to be raising money for Direct Relief with the food and drink community August 2nd to the 6th. 
You can find more info on that at directrelief.org sessions.